Good morning, ministers. Worthy is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world to receive blessing and honor and glory and power and wisdom and might. Worthy is the lamb, the son of the living God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For some reason this morning, I could just sing that for a while. I feel like singing today. Jesus said, they that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when you get those moments, those brief opportunities to dwell in worship in the presence of God, what a wonderful time, what a wonderful experience it is every time. I want to apologize to you all in advance because today is going to be more information probably than anything else. As we go into the book of Ezekiel, and the reason we have to spend some time on the history of the book and locating the book in the scriptures is because ministry is always done in some context or another. And without a context, it's difficult to understand what the writer is trying to convey without a context, without understanding the history or the reason why the book was written. And so bear with me this morning. Do not go to sleep. If you do, I'm going to come and poke you as I give you this information. The prophet Ezekiel was born into turbulent times, times of chaos and confusion political and social upheaval. The major players on the scene during the time were Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. And they were changing seats on the bus, if you will. They were changing positions of power. And all of the smaller nations in the Middle East were either disappearing or being decapitated. It was a troublesome time. For centuries, the Assyrians had exerted political and military influence throughout the region. They were in charge. They were on top of everything except for Egypt. Times were changing. In 627 BC, Babylon started to make some major moves in the Middle East against Assyria. And they were making phenomenal progress so much so that even Egypt, who was an enemy of Assyria, joined with Assyria to try to keep the Babylonians out of the region. They didn't want Babylon on their doorstep. They were concerned because these people were vicious. They were dominating. They took over everything. Wherever they went, Egypt and Assyria came together to try to stop them from taking over. They were the worst of the worst. Everybody knew it. Jeremiah prophesied about them. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 4, he says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you, Babylon, a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And they shall fall by the sword, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all of Judah, the promised land, I will give all of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. That is God making that promise. That is God giving that warning to Judah. I am sending Babylon. In another place, Jeremiah calls uh, Babylon, he calls them the arm of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, coming to bring justice upon Jerusalem, coming to bring justice upon the people of God. And just as God had promised, now it began to happen. The Assyrians put up a good fight, but they were driven off the map. And you never hear from the Assyrians again after Babylon overcomes them. The Egyptians decided to retreat back to their homeland and escape Babylon's violent hands. And Israel, Israel sitting there, Israel was swallowed whole. And all of this happened because the people of God had forgotten their God. 
Every person was doing what was right in their own eyes. Manasseh, king of Israel, had reigned from 687 to 642 BC. Second Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 18 labels Manasseh to be the worst king to ever sit on David's throne. He sponsored paganism. He sponsored orgies. He sponsored the worshiping of false gods. He sinned in the face of God and he brought all of the people along with him. He single-handedly led the people of Israel into spiritual apostasy. They became haters of God. And after Manasseh came Josiah. Josiah came to the throne at the age of eight years old and he tried as best he could to restore the temple to its former glory. He tried to purge the nation of their pagan cults. He tried to eliminate divination and magic from among the people. He tried to re-centralize worship of the one true God. But it was too little too late. He couldn't eradicate a, a half century of paganism from the people. Josiah reigned for 31 years and died at the age of 39. His son took over, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz only reigned for three months, but he was just like his grandfather. He was an evil king. And after him came Jehoiakim. Hmm. And Jehoiakim came and he undid all of Josiah's reforms. He restored pagan worship to the temple, to the people of God. And this is why God pronounced judgment against them. The nation of Israel and the nation of Judah were destined to fall. And Israel fell first. After months and months of Babylon laying siege to the region, laying siege to their nation, they finally managed to break through. They tore down the walls of Israel. They burned down most of the towns in Israel. They took hostages back to Babylon with them. They destroyed, they depleted the region. And so they went to the king of Judah. His name is Jehoiakim. They went to the king of Judah and tried to reason with him and say, listen, you see what we just did to Jerusalem, to Israel. If you don't want the same thing, just bow the knee and we will allow you to be our vassal and remain king over Judah, but we will really be in charge. And Jehoiakim refused. In 597 BC, Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, came together with two other armies and brought Jerusalem to its knees. Jeremiah reports about it. Jeremiah chapter 22, that Jehoiakim was captured and executed. Babylon installed another king named Jehoiakim in his place. And Jehoiakim came to the throne and then he refused to submit to Babylon again. Now God has already told them through Jeremiah, Babylon is going to take over. You are going into captivity. You are going to fall. But they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. And so he held out against Babylon. He appealed to Egypt for help, and Jeremiah warned them, do not go to Egypt seeking help. Your God is the God of all things. Don't go running around trying to find any assistance. What God has decided will come to pass. Hmm. King Jehoiakim got killed. And 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 17 tells us that Babylon installed another king, <laughs> Zedekiah. His real name is Mataniah, but they named him Zedekiah to take his place. Zedekiah came to the throne and he tried to stage a revolt against Babylon as well. Then finally, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. And in 589, Judah was invaded and put under siege. After more than a year, the walls came tumbling down. They went into Judah, into the promised land. They destroyed the temple of God. They destroyed all of the holy instruments of God. Zedekiah tried to flee, but they caught him and they put him on his knees and forced him to watch as they executed his children in front of his face. And after they killed them, they gouged out his eyes. And they put him in chains and took him away 
to Babylon. This was a turning point in the religious history of the people of Israel because Zedekiah was the last king in the line of King David. This was the last king in the line of King David. Killing, killing Zedekiah and then putting someone else on the throne who was not in David's line, this was a theological nightmare. Unbelievable that God would allow such a thing as this. They torched the city. They tore down the walls. They destroyed the temple. And the nation of Judah vanished overnight. And Babylon being wise, being true, they, they, they gathered up all of the prominent leaders. They gathered up all of the leaders' children, all of those who had any kind of education. They gathered up all of the political leaders. They gathered up all of the religious leaders, Daniel and his friends, as well as Ezekiel and all the other politicians, all the other religious leaders. They took them all captive and transported them out of Israel into Babylon so that they would never have this problem of revolt again. They only left behind people who were weak, common folk, to make sure they could never rebuild. They didn't take Jeremiah, they, they left Jeremiah in Judah because he wasn't the priest, he wasn't a Levite, they just left him behind. And while Ezekiel was prophesying in Babylon, Jeremiah was prophesying in Israel. They were contemporaries. Also, Daniel was their contemporary. They were all existing at the, how many people knew that? Sometimes when you read the Bible, you have to get the history behind everything because the Bible, the Old Testament, is not set up in chronological order. Second Kings goes with the book of Ezekiel, but they're so far apart you think that it was a chronological book and it's really not. That's why I wanted to give you that history so that you can situate the books. You can situate the book of Ezekiel in the larger framework of the Old Testament. Most of the people then were dispersed into Egypt or taken captive into Babylon. The common folk were left behind. But no matter where you found them, no matter where you found the Jews in the world, the people of Israel, the people of Judah were devastated. They were suffering economic poverty, political fatigue, spiritual shock. And all of the things they had taken for granted had faded away. Everything they had taken pride in, everything they had put their confidence in seemed to have failed them. God had promised that David's seed would be eternal. He, there would always be someone on David's throne. Forever, he said. But David's throne has been overthrown. God promised them that his name would forever remain in Jerusalem, but in their minds, Murdoch, the God of Babylon, has overthrown the temple of God. God didn't come through for them. God had declared Israel to be his home where he placed his name, his resting place. But in their view, God had been evicted. Their theology was all thrown off. They were in spiritual shock. Finally, God had promised to make them a great nation, and now they're dispersed all across the globe. God had not come through. They are distressed. They are cynical. They are angry. They are spiritually and theologically shocked. In light of all that I've told you so far then, I want you to take a moment and ask yourself some questions. If God were to send someone to minister to the spiritual needs of these people, what would that ministry need to look like in order to be effective? What kind of ministry would they need? If God were going to send a people to these cynical, angry, and theologically confused, what, what would that ministry look like? What kind of minister would it take to serve them? If I were a minister, if you were a minister, how would you serve these people? Think about that for a moment. What would you say to them? What could you do to possibly help them? You have an idea? 
now I want you to take a moment to consider this. Consider the fact that Ezekiel has experienced the very same things that they experienced. Ezekiel is not some objective onlooker. Ezekiel was taken captive. Ezekiel saw the killing. Ezekiel saw the dead bodies. Ezekiel heard the same women wailing and crying and screaming as their babies were murdered before their eyes. Ezekiel has experienced the exact same thing as all of them. He had hopes just like they did. He had hopes that God would not allow this to happen, just like they did. He had hopes that God would not allow their enemies to prosper, just like they did. He was just as confident as they were. That God wasn't going to allow them to be evicted from the promised land. That God was not going to allow another to sit on David's throne. Ezekiel is not immune to the suffering. He is a part of the suffering. And he is just as disillusioned. And he is just as disappointed as they are. He's one of them. Now, ask yourself another question in light of that truth. Ask yourself this. What would God have to do in order to convince Ezekiel to commit to, commit to being his spokesperson in this situation? What would God have to do? What would God have to change about Ezekiel to get God on board to become his minister, his spokesperson to these people when he's just as frustrated as they are? When he is just as angry as they are, what would God need to do in the life of Ezekiel to cause him to even desire to represent him to these people? I was just on the highway in what seemed like Monday morning rush hour traffic. The rain was making, I'm just at a standstill, don't know what to do. And the question came to me, just like Ezekiel. You're in the same situation with everybody else out here on the highway, frustrated, angry, confused. What if God told you right now to get out and minister to these people? How would you, you're just as frustrated as they are. What would that ministry look like? What would God need to do in me to get me over my problems so that I could focus on the needs of the people? What would God have to do? To make it more personal, what would God need to do in your life in order for you to accept the ministry that God has placed into your hands? What would God need to do? We've been talking about every member is a minister for the last three or four months. How many of you have started the ministry? How many of you have looked into it? What would God need to do? to get your attention and to change your mindset to the point where you were willing to step out into me. What does God need to do? What sort of transformation would Ezekiel need to undergo for faith to be rekindled in his own heart to the point where he would become willing to carry a message for a God that has seemingly failed them, a God that has seemingly abandoned them? It's one thing, it's one thing to minister and to serve suffering people when you yourself are not suffering. It's easy to go to Skid Row and serve the people food on Skid Row when your own belly is not empty. But when your belly is empty and God says, go feed the hungry, it's a different, it's a different world. God, feed me first. I'm hungry. And God said, no, no, you go feed them. They, they, need, they, they, need, they need food. I need food. What about me? And God says, I got you, I got you. You just, go, you just go and feed them. What would God need to do to transform me to the point where I could ignore the growling of my own belly to feed somebody else? What would God need to do? Ezekiel is just as disillusioned, just as frustrated, just as angry, and just as spiritually and theologically shocked as the people are. What would it take for you to serve hurting people when you yourself are in mourning? What would it take 
For you yourself to serve depressed people, when you yourself are struggling with depression, what would it take? How would you do it? How do you answer the penetrating questions of the masses when you yourself are filled with unanswered questions of your own? How can you pacify the concerns of the people when you're just as concerned as the people are? How do you mend the brokenhearted when your own heart is in tatters? How do you do this thing called ministry? These are the kinds of questions, brothers and sisters that sideline the majority of the people of God. These are the kinds of questions that sideline the majority of the people of God and cause us to sit silently by as the enemy makes more and more headway deceiving the multitudes while we ask these kinds of questions. While we respond to the Holy Spirit and say, I can't minister until I get my own life in order. I can't minister until I learn more of the Bible. I can't minister until I'm healed from all of my hurts, my habits, and my hangups. I can't minister until I am done. How can I allay their fears until I am no longer fearful? How can I walk with them through a spiritual curriculum when I can't find my spiritual footing? I can't minister to the masses until I have been healed. This is what we say. And all of these lesser questions dance around the larger and penetrating question. How does God make ministers? How does God make ministers? In this short series over the next couple weeks, I will attempt to help us to see how God makes ministers as we together review the book of Ezekiel to see if we can answer some of those questions. How does God make the minister? How does God take regular people and equip them for supernatural service beyond their hurts and their pains, beyond their sins and their shortcomings? How does God make a minister? And of course, the most straightforward and the most religious answer to that question can be found in Ezekiel's name. Because the name Ezekiel means literally, my God strengthens me. That's what Ezekiel means. My God strengthens me. His mother and father named him that. They didn't know what was coming down the road, but they prophesied truth with his name. My God strengthens. God makes ministers by strengthening them to carry out the work that he's called them to do. My God strengthens. We minister by, we minister in, and we minister through the strength of God. Jesus declares as much in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit, does ministry. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God strengthens ministers. He speaks to us again, or as he speaks to the apostles in the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and says this, you will receive power. Let me say it again. You will receive power. You all know I come from a charismatic background, and so I'm trying to keep my left foot from dancing right now. You will receive power. You gonna dance with me? She gonna dance with me? <laughs> when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and as far as the remotest part of the earth, you will receive 
power. I will strengthen you. This is the minister's only confidence. This is the minister's only trust that as he stands to serve, that God will strengthen him and cause his work to accomplish whatever God has ordained by the strength and by the power of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, if a minister stands up to see what he can accomplish by his own might, his work will be fruitless and he may as well sit down. But if a man of God stands in anticipation of what God might do through him, then nothing will be impossible. We are strengthened by God. God strengthens his ministers. But this is the condensed answer. This is the answer that you get and you just walk away still confused. When I say to one of the brothers here in the church, God has a ministry for you, man, and I can see it. All you have to do is just follow this curriculum I'm gonna give you and just get up and do the work. And I get, but how? I don't know how to do this. I don't know. God will strengthen. They just, they, they walk away so frustrated. Come on, man, that's not the right answer. You gotta tell me something more. How is God gonna strengthen? How does this work? You will receive power. As we consider together the calling of Ezekiel, I believe we can see exactly what this strengthening may entail. And as we see it, we can begin to ask God to equip us in a similar way to make us fit for the fight that lies ahead. To give us strength for the journey in and through our ministries. Because every one of us here has a ministry. We understand that Ezekiel's primary audience then is the Jews, the Jews that are in Babylon specifically. And verses one through three is his opening statement and his explanation of how he came to be a prophet, of how he came to be a spokesperson of God to a weary people. He says this in verse one. Now it came about in the 30th year there are a lot of different theories among commentators as to what he's talking about. What do you mean by 30th year? What 30th year? The 30th year, 30th, 30th year since the exile? The 30th year since you began your ministry? What do you mean by 30th year? What, what are you exactly saying? Most commentators tend to agree that Ezekiel is talking about his age. Ezekiel is saying that I was 30 years old. It was my 30th year. And according to the book of Numbers, Chapter 4, verse 30, this was the age at which priests qualified for induction into the ministry. Ezekiel was a priest, but there was no temple. Ezekiel was a priest, but they were no longer in Jerusalem. And yet God, on his 30th birthday, came to ordain him as a minister. I think that's awesome. If Jerusalem hadn't fallen... Right now, Ezekiel will be putting on his priestly robe, getting ready for his coronation. It's his 30th birthday. He's been training and practicing for this all of his life. He has lived his life in anticipation of the day that he becomes a priest. He's studied hard. He's practiced as an altar boy. He's lit the incense. He's stood there ushering in people into the temple. He's assisted in religious ceremonies. He has prepared most of his life for this day his 30th year, and his dream was dashed when Babylon invaded. God was true to his word to Ezekiel. And on the day or in this season where he was supposed to be ordained, God ordains him by a river without the pomp and without the circumstance. Without the crowd of well-wishers standing by celebrating Ezekiel's achievements, God just ordains him by a river. Just he and God alone. That's how you come to ministry. Alone, just you and God. This is the experience every minister must have and must be able to recall. A moment, the moment that God called you. The moment that God made it clear to you that you have a specific purpose in the kingdom. This is a private certainty that every minister has to have if you're going to wage a campaign under the banner of Jesus Christ. A certainty of the call. 
a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus Christ to receive your personal ordination. Every minister has to have it. Every minister has to have that one experience. You don't want to go into ministry based on someone else's opinion. You don't want to go into ministry based upon someone else's encouragement. You don't even want to go into ministry because the pastor keeps on instigating ministry for you. No, no. You can't go into the spiritual battle based upon someone else's information. You have to personally have that private conversation with the Lord. Because you need a private certainty that every minister has to have. God reassures Ezekiel that even though the temple has fallen, God's plan for ministry has not been postponed. That God can do his work in the temple or outside of the temple. That God can do his work in the church or outside of the church. That God has established his ministry not through institutions, but by his own spirit. The minister doesn't depend on degrees. The minister doesn't depend on recommendations. The minister doesn't depend on encouragement of the masses. The minister doesn't depend on his title. The minister trusts God to make good on his own promise, a promise that the minister received in private consultation with God alone, that God would empower him and that God would defend the work that he's called him to do. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, more specifically on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles. I wasn't among the elites, Ezekiel says. I wasn't walking the halls of some Ivy League school I was sitting by a river minding my own business, Ezekiel said. I wasn't envisioning ministry. I wasn't anticipating anything. I had no ambition for much more than what I was doing at the moment. I considered myself to be just another exile among exiles, sharing in the same grief, the same frustration as they. I was sitting by the river, Kibar. The point there simply being that the minister's station in life does not matter to God. Whether he is bound or free, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, God chooses and uses whomever he wills. I was just sitting there by the river. Your calling into ministry has nothing to do with your station in life. Your calling into ministry has nothing to do with your pedigree or your culture. When God calls you, God shapes you and makes you for the work that he is calling you to perform. God is the one who prepares his ministers. It came about in the 30th year, more specifically, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Oh. How does God make the minister? The first thing God does in making the minister, you want to write this down, the first thing God does in making the minister is God gives the minister a personal and spiritual experience. The first thing God does when he makes a minister is God gives him or her a personal and a spiritual experience. There are a number of examples of this in the Old Testament. You already know most of them. I'll just read a couple just to give you some examples. Jacob had the vision of a ladder in Genesis chapter 6 before God changed his name and made him the leader of the nation Israel. Moses encountered God in a burning bush that spoke to him in Exodus chapter three. Joshua had a conversation with God in Joshua chapter one when he was ordained to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. There are so many others like go on forever, Gideon. 
Every man of God that was called in the Old Testament has a story of a personal and a spiritual encounter with the holy. It is necessary if you're going to do ministry to have a personal and a spiritual experience with God. But the Old Testament is rather theatrical, rather dramatic. We're not in the Old Testament, we're in the New Testament. So the question then is, what about the New Testament? Did God still call his ministers in a similar way in the New Testament? Anybody can answer that, yay or nay? Did God still privilege his ministers with such a profound and such an indelible impression when he called them into ministry in the New Testament? Absolutely, yes. Good Bible students here. Absolutely, yes. And so then you know the most profound example of this then, of course. The Apostle Paul, yeah. Acts chapter 2, verse, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a noise, like a violent rushing wind, came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them distributing themselves, and the tongue rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. They had a spiritual and a personal experience. It wasn't a corporate, they were all together, but it wasn't a corporate experience. The Holy Spirit didn't just come and sit on top of all of them. The Bible says here that the Holy Spirit rested on each individual one of them. <laughs> they had a personal and a spiritual experience. To put it another way, they were so filled with the Holy Spirit that they began to do things that they were, that was humanly impossible for them to do. Things like speaking out in unknown languages that they never learned. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability and a newfound capacity to do more than they ever imagined that they could. And this experience on the day of Pentecost is similar to, and in many cases, it is superior to what Ezekiel experienced. Because this episode goes far beyond merely an encounter with the holy. On the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the holy. They didn't just see him on the outside. They experienced him on the inside. They were filled. <laughs> Ezekiel couldn't say that. What Ezekiel saw was great and powerful and mighty enough to launch him into ministry, but we have something even greater. We have something that speaks even greater things than that of Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw the wheel in the middle of the wheel on the outside. We see the wheel in the, on the inside. Yeah, man. <laughs> this is how God equips ministers. This is how God makes a minister. By filling him with the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, for theological reasons, we have to differentiate here then between being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and being filled by the Holy Spirit. Because every child of God is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Every child of God is a temple of God, right? We know that's true. To be indwelled by the Holy Spirit is to be inducted into the family of God and marked or sealed for eternal life. We all have the Holy Spirit. Paul explained that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Every child of God is sealed. Every child of God has received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We all, every child of God has the Holy Spirit. But not every believer, not every child of God has been filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a difference. 
The seal of the Holy Spirit secures my identity in Jesus Christ. It marks me, it names me as one of his own. That is my identity. But the filling with the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the work in the kingdom of God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is solely for the purpose of ministry. This is why Paul the Apostle admonishes believers who already have been, already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He admonishes them and says this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. If they were already filled, he would not say that. They weren't filled, they had the seal of God, but they were not filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be mastered by the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to move with the Holy Spirit in power. Be filled. This is how God makes the minister, by filling us with the Holy Spirit to do things that are impossible. <laughs> To be filled with the Spirit is to have an encounter with the Holy within your own self. Ezekiel encountered God on the outside, but we, the children of God, we can encounter God within our own selves. And by that encounter, by that indelible impression that God leaves in our hearts, we can mount a campaign for Jesus Christ in the power, in the authority of his name. This is the first way that God makes the minister, by giving us a personal and a spiritual experience with the holy. I'll have to continue this topic next week. But until then, let me ask you the question. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? I understand that you're a child of God, but have you had that personal spiritual encounter with the holy within your own self? It is essential for ministry. It is absolutely necessary for ministry that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, Paul came across some people who had received Jesus Christ. They had been baptized into John the Baptist's baptism. Now, they were baptized into the wrong baptism, but they were children of God nonetheless. They had received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, have you all been baptized since you believed? We were baptized into John's baptism, yeah. He said, let, 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 let's baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. He baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ, and the Bible says they were all filled. They were already saved, but they were filled. I am telling you, brothers and sisters, that the work that God is calling you to do, each one of you individually, will require that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. At this point in my charismatic upbringing, I would begin to explain to you what that feels like and what that seems like. But the truth of the matter is, it's different for every person. It's different for every person. But I'll tell you this much, you will know it if you've experienced it. <laughs> if you have had an encounter with the divine, you know it. There is no questioning when you meet God in your personal space. There is no question that you have come into contact with the holy. And why is this so necessary? Well, we're going to see, we're going to see as we go on in this that Ezekiel just received a profound experience. Ezekiel's experience was like nobody else's. I mean, this guy saw all kinds of glory. But when you consider the ministry that he had to do, and the depth of the depravity of the people that he had to minister to, you begin to understand why it took such a, a, a tremendous revelation. The degree to which you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit is dependent upon the ministry that God has given to you. If God, Joe, Joe has called you to do great things, you must receive a great filling. 
The degree to which you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit depends upon the work that God is calling you to do. In the book of Acts, the people were complaining because the church wasn't feeding the widows. And they went to the apostle Peter and they said, well, Peter, you know, you guys are not doing right. You say you love people. You say you're the people of Jesus and you're letting these people go hungry. You need to feed the hungry. Why isn't the church feeding the hungry? The apostle Peter, knowing his calling, said, you know what? I'm not feeding the hungry. Uh, I'm going to give myself to fasting and prayer and to the preaching of the word. That's my responsibility. That's what I'm going to do. You say that today and people say, you know, you don't love people. No, no. Peter knew what he was saying. I admire my role in the kingdom is to preach the gospel and to fast and to pray. I'm going to focus on that. But here's what he says. Choose you out 12 men among yourselves. And he says, make sure that they're filled with the spirit of wisdom. To feed the hungry, yes, even to feed the hungry, you need to be filled. That's for anybody right now who's thinking, well, my ministry is just to, to pass out lunch bags. Yeah, you need to be filled to do that. You need to be filled to do any work in the kingdom of God that's going to count. You can be as generous as you want. You can work out of your own love for people and your own concern about people. It's all good. That, that's commendable. But if you want to do any kingdom work, you need to be filled with the Spirit of God. <laughs> We all need to be filled with the Spirit. You all are ministers. And my challenge to each of you this week, first of all, if you've had that spiritual experience, to reflect on that experience and to understand this, that if God has given you a revelation and understanding of himself within your own heart in a personal and a spiritual way, it is because he has work for you to do. God is very efficient. He doesn't go around just exposing himself to people just to make you feel good. If God has given you a personal and a spiritual experience, it is for the purpose of empowering you to do some work. You need to get up and do some work. That's all. But if you have not had this experience that I'm talking about, if you have not been filled with the Holy Spirit, I want you to go home tonight and every night this week and just read the book of Acts chapter two again. And allow yourself to get caught up in the story and to sit and to wait. <laughs> I'm telling you what, you just sit and wait now. I'm gonna tell you how it happened for me now, you guys. You know, I was at the altar and I was kneeling down praying, young man, and I'm talking to Jesus and I'm just, and an old mother came and sat beside me while I sat there at the altar and she said, son, have you been in the spirit? I'll take that. And she said, all you got to do is just ask him. Ask him to fill you with the spirit. Jesus said it. Jesus said, if your son asks you for bread, will you give him a stone? How much more then will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? Ask him. If you have not had that personal experience with God, I guarantee you it will transform your life. And it will set you on a trajectory, become a laborer in the kingdom of God. You know what the problem we're having today is? I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm going to say it. You know what the problem we're having today is? There are too many people who put their hands to the plows of the kingdom who are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And we've made shipwreck of, of, the, of the church of Jesus Christ. We've made shipwreck because we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, because we've had no personal experience with Jesus Christ, because we're working in our own strength, according to our own imagination, according to our own opinions, our own abilities and proclivities, <laughs> because we're doing what we want to do and we're asking God just to bless our decisions and God is saying, no, absolutely not. I only bless what I ordain and I didn't ordain that. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be endued with power. And then we will be witnesses. And it won't be from our own might, our own strength, or our own knowledge. It will be by the Spirit of the living God. That's the first thing then, how God makes a minister, is by filling us with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.
Father God, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of how you take ordinary people and do such extraordinary things in the world. Of how you take us from humble beginnings and you give us a voice and allow us to speak for you. What a privilege, what an opportunity. Father, we love you. And we desire to serve you in whatever capacity you called us to. But as ministers, we also understand that we need to be filled with your spirit. So we ask you right now, I ask you on behalf of this entire congregation, that this week as they read your word, this week as they sit silently before you, this week as they ask you with confidence in prayer, that you would fill each one of them with the Holy Spirit. That you would make it a moment that they can never forget, a moment that they will always recall. That you will fill us with fresh vision, fresh knowledge of the holy. That your Holy Spirit would speak in us and speak through us. That you would call us to ministry. You would give us the will to answer yes to your call. You have made every one of us a minister of reconciliation. And those ministries look different depending upon the capabilities that you have placed into each of our lives. I pray that you would fill each one of us to capacity. That we would make more and more room for you in our hearts and in our lives. That we would give you more of our time, more of our possessions. That we would say yes to you in every aspect, in every area of our lives. We hunger and we thirst after you. We desire to be filled with your Holy Spirit for ministry. Confident that you hear us when we pray, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name.